I do invite you to take your Bibles out and turn at this time to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. On May 1st, 1915, the Lewis Tanya left port from New York en route to Liverpool, England. It was a British steamship that was under the jurisdiction of the Admiral of England, a man named Winston Churchill. Almost 2,000 people were on board, including 95 children and 39 infants. The Lusitania was an amazing civilian ship, fast, comfortable, luxurious, and very well liked by travelers. But this voyage would be its last in a line of hundreds of safe passages. Days before the ship left port in New York, the Imperial German Embassy placed a warning advertisement in over 75 American newspapers, many up and down the coast, including some right in New York. And the heading, bold print, large capital letters, notice, exclamation point. And the ad said, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the imperial government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in the waters and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. And it was signed underneath Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22nd, 1915. Well, despite the ad, people embarked on the Lusitania, and you can still watch the ship on film leaving the port for its last voyage. People smiling, waving excitedly, and blowing kisses to their loved ones before going to their first-class cabins and enjoying all of the food, luxuries, and amenities that the ship had to offer. Then on May 7th, near the end of her 202nd crossing of the Atlantic, a German U-boat spotted the ship. At a 700-meter range, an order was given for one torpedo to be fired. The single torpedo struck its mark. A direct hit. Seawater drenched the passengers. Children jumping rope on the deck stopped immediately. Within seconds, the ship rolled to the right. 18 minutes later, the ship sank, killing almost 1,200 of its passenger, crew, and most of the children. Never before had an attack on a civilian ship of this magnitude ever taken place. When you enter a war zone, even when you are on a luxurious civilian ship, you may experience the worst that war can offer. And it's important for those of us who are Christians to realize this as well. We are in a similar position. A declaration of war has been issued. We've been told to expect attack. Yet it's so easy for us to think that we're continuing to live in peacetime conditions. And then to be so surprised when we find ourselves embattled and attacked. We're living in a war zone, but we're expecting 
peacetime conditions. Torpedoes are constantly being launched at us. And we think because we live in America that we're enjoying the luxuries of the world's most advanced country. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, often said, when you sleep, remember you are resting on the battlefield. And when you travel, suspect an ambush in every hedge. You know, anyone living in America right now, do you think that we're living in peacetime conditions? You know, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, liquor stores and abortion clinics were considered essential services. But guess what wasn't an essential service? The church. Okay? Oh, yeah, we can put our services out online, but you can't have more than 10 people gathered together, and you have to use all the PPE. You've got to have the face mask and the hand sanitizers. You've got to keep social distance. The people who sing and, and are up front speaking, yeah, they can have their masks off, but everybody else, you can't have more than 10 people assembling at a time. Remember those days? Then even when churches were allowed to open, it was 25% capacity. And of course, with again, all the PPE requirements in place, and some states even put a cap at 100 people at a time. Think about these megachurches that have tens of thousands of people in their churches, tens of thousands of seats in some of their sanctuaries and places of worship, but they were limited to 100 people. But retail stores could pack people in by the hundreds. That was okay, because those things are considered essential. You remember what Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil? Man does not live on bread alone, but what? On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what God said is essential. And have you noticed that no liquor stores or uh, bars or any of those establishments ever make the front page news on any of our national publications if contact tracing points back to them that someone actually picked up the coronavirus in their uh, businesses or establishments, or even if it does point to it's happening in these places, it doesn't name them, but let it happen in a church. I'm telling you what, Front page news on major newspapers. They name the counties. They name the churches. They name the locations. They name if it's a funeral service or a wedding or a worship service. They name all of those things. And also, where does this notion come from that it's okay to gather thousands and assemble thousands upon thousands of people to protest and even riot, shouting and screaming all kinds of vile profanities, some even without using the personal protective equipment, and some attacking police officers with commercial-grade fireworks. You know, fireworks, sales are through the roof right now, through the roof. In some states, you can't even buy them, but they purchase them, take them across state lines, and use them against law enforcement officers, and they're hurling frozen bottles through the air, and they're also filling bottles, water bottles, and tennis balls with concrete, and throwing some of them at 50 to 60 miles an hour at law enforcement officers. And of course, who can forget the bricks, and the bats, and the Molotov cocktails, and the destroying, and the looting, and the burning, and the devastation, not only of law enforcement vehicles, and of police precincts, but of people's private property, and businesses, and all of that in many of our major cities, to the tune of $2 billion dollars right now. And most of these perpetrators do not get arrested. And many who do, do not get charged. And you know something interesting? If you get charged with a felony and convicted, you don't get to vote. 
So isn't that all fascinating that's, ha- that's happening? But contrast this to Christians who tried to worship last Easter in April in their cars, in church parking lots, listening on FM radio stations, windows closed. Many of them got fined $500 for violating city and state executive orders and ordinances. And likewise, in the past month, when Christians have gathered in major cities where there's been tremendous protesting and rioting like Seattle or Portland or Chicago or Atlanta for worship protest services, how does it get portrayed in the news media, uh, in the outlets and by various politicians? Oh, that's terrible. They're spreading the coronavirus. They're heartless. They don't care for their neighbors. They're putting people's lives at risk. And some are even going as far as saying they're killing people. They're killing people by gathering together like that. One has First Amendment rights of free speech to protest, and that's perfectly okay. But another has a First Amendment right of first, the free exercise of religion, and that is not. And get this, if you try to speak the truth via the social media outlets, you are at risk of being shut down by many of the big tech companies who own them. Many Christians have already been shut down. And yet, mistruths and lies and misquotes about Christians and other people telling the truth, they're allowed to go completely unchecked on the media. Now, does anybody here still think that as Christians, we're living in peacetime conditions? Do you really buy into that notion? That we're still enjoying this ride on this world's greatest cruise liner and we're not going to take on any torpedoes? Folks, the Christian life is a battle. And the Bible's very clear on this. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you've just entered a war. And being a Christian is one of the hardest things that you will ever attempt to do. We're living in an extremely hostile world to our faith. And yet we move forward constantly expecting peacetime conditions. This is the world that crucified our Savior. Why do we think that they're going to endorse us? who are trying to promote our Savior. The Christian life is a battle. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, we're going to be studying this for the next two months, and it points it out very clearly. In fact, verse 10 begins, finally, he's saying in summation, based upon everything I've taught you this far, based upon everything that I've shared with you in this letter, in sum total, here's what he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty The Phillips paraphrase of this verse puts it this way. Be strong, not in yourselves, but in the Lord, in the power of his boundless resource. Does any of this now sound familiar to you, what we're talking about being strong in the Lord? In the Old Testament times when God commissioned Joshua as Moses' successor, and three different occasions in the first chapter of Joshua, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, he encouraged him to be strong and courageous. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20, when the kingdom of Israel was being passed from David onto Solomon, his son, and David had longed to build the temple, but God wasn't going to allow him because he was a man of war. He was a man of bloodshed. But Solomon, his name means peace, was a man of peace, and he was going to allow him to build the temple. So David had gathered all the resources. He'd done all the hard work of raising the money and the, and the, and the equipment and even some of the labor, but Solomon was going to have to carry that all out. And with the project of the temple's construction on the horizon, when the mantle of leadership was being passed to Solomon, David told his son, be strong 
and courageous. Do the work. And the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament, speaking to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 said, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are more than 30 occurrences in the Bible where God encourages and commands people to be strong. So when one reads Paul's final words in this amazing epistle to the Ephesians, one may assume that this command to be strong is an order for us to fight. After all, it's an example here in this passage of all of the armor that a soldier would put on before going into battle, before going out to fight, to advance, to regain lost ground, to battle an opponent, to take uh, the fight to them, to be offensive. But when you look at this passage more carefully, you discover it's not a call to fight at all. It's a call to stand. We're called to stand firm in our faith. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, verse 14, stand firm then. And it told us in verse 11 that the devil has schemes. And we're going to talk more about this uh, particularly in the future. But I want to jump down to verse 12 for a moment. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's all of these outside forces, you know, in the spiritual world, arrayed against the Christian, arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard for you to get yourself to church sometimes? How, especially this summer, we had beautiful weather. The month of May on through even September, we've had five months of gorgeous weather up here. You know, that it's been so nice that it's easier to go camping than it is to go to church. And of course, we've got the COVID, you know, whole issue. So we've got that, you know, requirement. Nobody at the campground has COVID, even though they're coming from other states and campgrounds are 90 plus percent full, but that's okay. We can go there, but we can't gather together at church. You know, this summer, it's been hard to come to church and it's a lot easier to go golfing, isn't it? Or fishing or hunting or to little league practice or to little league tournaments that have been happening on weekends like crazy now because everything's so shut down. And why is it so difficult some days to even open your Bible, to have devotions, to read it and study it? Why is it so difficult to have quality time every day with God in prayer? Or why is it going to be so challenging for many of us next Saturday, September 26th, to set aside some time to pray for our nation? The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and many other Christian leaders are gathering in Washington. They're starting at the Washington Monument, going to the Lincoln Memorial, going to the Capitol, going to the White House. They're going to all these places to pray for our nation. And they're calling on Christians throughout the United States of America to participate as well. And you can even join in online in doing that. But why is it going to be so hard for many Christians to do that? To free up a few minutes or an hour or two next Saturday to pray for our nation. Also, why is it so hard for people to consistently give their tithe to the church? And why is it so difficult to keep your thoughts pure 
and keep your eyes on what is good. Living the Christian life is hard. Why? Because of the spiritual warfare that exists in this world and in this universe. We have our enemies. And look at what the Apostle Paul said earlier in this book. I ask you to flip over to chapter 2, and I want to read for you verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's talking to the Ephesus uh, believers there, but he's talking to us as well. All of us, if we, before we ever came to Christ, were dead in our sins, were dead in our transgressions, in which you used to live. That's how we lived our lives. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the evil one, Satan. We did what the world wanted, and we were doing what Satan wanted. And the spirit who is now at work in all who are disobedient. You wonder what's going on in our world? The spirit of the evil one is at work in all those who are out there who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Okay? So we have the world, we have Satan, and we have our own flesh, okay? Uh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. We deserved God's judgment. That's the path. That's the trajectory of our lives. So we had all these enemies that are out there, a whole range of evil forces arrayed against us. And the evil one, as we've already read in Ephesians 6, chapter 11, the devil has strategies that are designed to defeat us. And we're going to talk about those more in the future. But that is what we have to stand against. Now, here's an important biblical point I want to highlight. We take our stand from a position of strength, not for victory, but from victory. And yes, why are we not called to fight? And I'm not stating this before you today as some form of pacifist either. Why are we not called to fight? Because Christ, by his death and resurrection, has already defeated Satan. That prediction was from the very beginning. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Christ, Satan's already been defeated, okay? That's important for us to remember. And this is why these verses in the Bible are so significant to us. We're not on the losing side. The, no matter what happens in the world around us, we are on the winning team. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. And he says that after the things that the apostle Paul said in earlier verses, like verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57 to say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our theme verse for today that was read in our scripture reading earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives. We're part of his victorious train. 
this king that's leading this triumphant procession of people who are in his captivity, the spoils of Jesus' victory. These people with all of their gifts and abilities and everything that God's given them are led in this procession, this train behind this triumphant king, and we're going to be used to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So from a spiritual perspective, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting, fighting from it. And this changes everything. See, we're called to be strong so that we can stand in the victory that has already been won. And as we look in the rearview mirror, we're resting in Christ's victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. And as we look ahead through the windshield of our lives, we see a future knowing that God will always lead us in victory. This is how we overcome the world. Now, we defend the ground of our lives by standing firm in the faith. When attacked by the evil one's schemes, what are you going to do in that situation? Will you fight? Well, the truth is the evil one's more powerful than you. Will you run? Well, the evil one's faster than any of us. Will you endure? Well, the truth is Satan's more patient than any of us because he's been at this gig for over 6,000 years, scheming for a long time. What are we to do? We're to stand firm in the victory that's already ours in Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the only thing that the enemy doesn't have. You know, he, he, compared to us, this, Satan's got a lot of things. But he does not have, you know, the faith that we have, the victory that we already have in Christ. That's the only thing for which the evil one has no defense. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know, Dr. Klein Snodgrass, a former now retired New Testament professor from our denomination seminary, North Park, once said, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And one of the evil one's uh, defective strategies is to get us to question God's goodness, to tempt us into thinking that somehow God is holding back on us or for us. And we begin then to question God's word. Folks, Satan is a deceiver. He knows what works. He's been at this, uh, you know, scheming for thousands of years. He knows how to sow doubt. He knows how to catch us off guard, how to make us think that we're actually losing instead of being on the winning side. C.S. Lewis said, the way we win isn't to focus on the enemy. It's to focus on God, who we are in him and what we possess in Christ. And he went on to say that there are two errors that Christians can easily fall into regarding the devil. One is to dismiss the existence of the evil one and his minions. And the other is to have an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. Satan, he says, delights in both options. See, we do not advance in the faith this way. We advance by standing firm in the Lord. And the one who is the way the one who is the truth, the one who is the life. And by living our lives in the strength of his might, that's how we advance. Folks, we of all people should never be caught off guard regarding the true nature of the battle we face. We shouldn't think 
We're on this luxurious steam liner and just having the trip of our lives when all these torpedoes are being launched at us. And you know, something biblical I also need to say here today is that no one is too weak to experience God's power in their life. However, I do think some are too self-sufficient in themselves to receive it. Now, notice here in this passage in verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians, it does not say, be strong in yourself. It says, be strong in the Lord. See, self-sufficiency is a major barrier in taking a stand in this spiritual battle that's raging in the universe right now. And people often think that they have to keep this stiff upper lip, you know, maintain control at all times, remain stoic and emotionless and present no needs or no weaknesses. And that's simply not a biblical approach at all. It, in fact, as human beings in a fallen world, battling, this, battling sin, battling the flesh, battling the devil, we're too weak to be strong on our own. This is exactly why we need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we don't go this thing alone. Sadly, I must say that a lot of preachers that preach this passage, they seem to always apply this to the individual. And the truth of the matter is, no soldier enters into a war zone alone. They don't. They go with fellow troop members. And nor does anyone enlist in the military and then just go off and play and do their own thing. Hearing the last words from the recruiter that, well, when the next major conflict comes around, we'll call you up, you come and fight with us at that moment. As if they don't prepare, don't train, don't do anything. No, you're part of a squadron. You're, uh, you're a member of troops called the church. And we train and we prepare and we learn and we study and we grow and hold each other accountable and all those things so that we can face this battle together. It says here, to be strong. And I need to tell you that that's a command. We're commanded to be strong, but it's given in the original language in a passive voice, meaning this is something you have to do, but we don't make ourselves strong. Isn't that so interesting? Do this, but you can't do it for yourself. Can't make yourself strong. What we do is receive from the Lord what we need in order to be strong. Part of what comes, part of that comes through the church as this letter here is written to the church at Ephesus. And the command here is to receive from God his power, to take action in your life by seeking God, and God will supply what you need. You know, when the apostle Paul says here, in the Lord, that's referring to the Lord Jesus. And do you remember how Martin Luther, the great church reformer, put this concept into a song? It was a hymn called A Mighty Fortress. Amazingly, he put it into contemporary uh, not, not lyrics, but not the contemporary music at the time. He used a barroom tune to get the message through to people, but he wanted them to understand what the words were saying, so he put it in a catchy barroom tune so that people would understand it. And verse 2, the first two lines of verse 2 say, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. It's only because Jesus is on our side that we can be strengthened. You know, 105 years ago, passengers on the Lewis Tanya were warned before they ever left port that the state of war existed, and though they were civilians, they could expect attack. It was probably hard for them in their peacetime longings and first-class accommodations 
to sense the inevitability of this. Tragically, nearly 1,200 people lost their lives, including many children and babies, because these travelers just could not see the battle raging. We too have been warned that a state of war exists. The Bible teaches that we have powerful enemies who are employing sophisticated tactics to try and defeat us. But we've been given strength by God through Christ so that we can stand. It is from a position of strength. As verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, not only do we live in perplexing times, we live in very troubling times, times that have us all wondering, what's next? How much worse can it, be, can it get? How tragic to see the lawlessness and the disorder and the chaos and the disregard for fellow human beings and all of these things as we see people so caught up in themselves, lovers of themselves, as the scriptures say. And Lord, we act like we're surprised by all of that as we just have these peacetime longings on this American cruise ship that we think is just going to go on forever and we get to live in peacetime conditions in a world that crucified our Savior and our Lord. God, I pray that we would wake up to the battle that's really raging out there, that we would live as overcomers in this world, and you've taught us today that that starts from a position of strength, from the victory that's already won as we look in the rearview mirror and see what Christ has already done for us in defeating sin and death and the cross and the resurrection, but also looking forward, knowing that he walks with us each step of the way, never leaving us nor forsaking us, and that the victory that awaits us in the future is with Jesus, his spirit, and you, O oh God the Father, accompanying us all the way. God, I pray that we'll move forth in that strength in Jesus' name. Amen.